As we begin uh, in Revelation chapter 12 in verses 7 through 12 this morning, we'll see how far we can get in this particular session. We're picking up our study uh, with verse 7. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 6 just to help us to remember what the context is. Remember the broad context here. The broader context here is that Revelation is written in, we're calling it two acts, Act 1 and Act 2. It really is retelling the same story twice. In Act 1, we heard the story in some detail. In Act 2, we're going to zoom in on particular parts of that and learn more about it. But here's the overall story. The overall story is this, that Jesus is taking back dominion from Satan. That Jesus in his ministry came and is taking back the nations under his rule and under his authority. And so Revelation is the record of how Jesus came and brought a covenant lawsuit against the ungodly. Sometimes we say that word apostate so much, and, and I know that's close to the word apostles, and it can be confusing. When we say apostate Israel, we're talking about ungodly, unrepentant, out of covenant with God, Israelites, and Jesus came and is showing them the contractual, I say that word for our terminology, it's not really too accurate, the covenantal paperwork is a much more accurate way of saying it. The covenantal paperwork of what they were supposed to do to be in good standings with Yahweh. They didn't do that for the most part. Some did and they were a faithful remnant. They were part of the Ecclesia. But those that were opposed, it needed a total overhaul. He brought ungodly Jerusalem to its knees and crushed it and replaced it with a heavenly Jerusalem. He took the ungodly actions of the temple and he tried to cleanse the temple in Matthew 21 and they kept coming back and making it vile. And so Jesus did what was commanded of him in Leviticus 17 and he destroyed the temple completely. He replaced it with a new temple, which is his body. That's your third temple theology right there. The third temple talked about in the Bible, first is the tabernacle, then the, then the temple made of stone, and then the body of Christ, which if you're saved, you're part of that, which is why the Holy Spirit can dwell in you. Think about how amazing that is. The Holy Spirit dwells in you in the same exact way, exactly the same, no different, than when the children of Israel in the wilderness would pray that the, the Holy Spirit's presence would come, God's presence would come in the tabernacle and, and accept their sacrifices. That same presence, that, that pillar of cloud is residing in you, the temple of God. That's the power of what Christ has done. So the book of Revelation is a record of Jesus taking back the nations from the dominion of Satan to the, his own kingdom and bring it back under the rule and authority of mankind. Because if you remember, it was given to Adam and he lost it. It was given to Satan. He took it. And then Jesus, the great representation of mankind as God emptied himself and became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled with us, Jesus, our representation now, stole back the nations from Satan. So this is the record of that. Act, uh, uh, sorry, Revelation 12 begins Act 2, and so we have a fresh start in Revelation 12. Remember, Act 1 was the focus of the story of what Jesus did as our Messiah to take the nations back. It ends in chapter 11 of the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our dear Lord. We start the story over again, and here's the emphasis in Act 2, Revelation 12 through the end, 2022. 20, it is this, that it is the emphasis of, okay, Messiah got nations back. Now the emphasis in the second act is, how does that affect his people 
the ecclesia. How do we play a part in this now that Messiah has won? In verses 1 through 6, it says, Now a great sign appeared, and this is from last week, so we'll just go quickly through it. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. We made the case last week that the woman here is the faithful ecclesia, those that are the faithful remnant of God in covenant with him. It is not the nation of Israel in general. It can't be because here in verse number six, it is the woman that fled into the wilderness. It's the followers of Christ that did that when Rome was invading Jerusalem. It was not apostate Israel. They died in Jerusalem. So that gives us our definition. So here we have the story between verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. She, the faithful remnant of Israel, with an emphasis on the women that were faithful, but she, the faithful remnant of Israel, bore a male child, that's Jesus, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. So that's his birth. That's the Christmas story, as we call it. But look at part B of verse 5. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. That's the end of his ministry. So verse number 5 encompasses the entire ministry of Christ from his birth to his ascension. You see that in verse 5? His birth and his ascension in the last part. And then in verse number 6, we jump to the faithful remnant fleeing to the wilderness, the hills of Judea, when the Roman army surrounds Jerusalem, according to Luke 21, the abomination of desolation. When that happens, remember Jesus told his followers, hightail it out of here. Don't go back to get your clothes Hey, I feel sorry for those who are, who, are, who are nursing children. But hey, listen, you have no time, no excuses. I don't care what playpen is back there or what Graco thing is back there. I don't care how hard it is. Run for your lives. Don't be like Lot's wife and linger back at your good days in Jerusalem. Get out of there. Right? And so that's the instruction. So you see that in verses 5, verse 5, birth. End of verse 5, ascension, beginning of verse 6, the instructions to get out before the Roman army comes. Now, all of a sudden, in verse number 7, we have a war that's broke out in heaven. So I'm going to read from your handout so you can understand this. We pick up with our study in verse 7, but it's important to note that chronologically speaking, in other words, in the order of time, if you're watching a movie, sometimes movies bounce like that, we're balancing like that, like a movie. So if you want to know in the order of time, it's important to note uh, this verse in verse 7 is giving you more information in between verses 5 and 6. In between verse 5, and you have the ascension of Christ in verse 5, and all of a sudden we jump to about 36 and a half years later in verse number 6. So verse 7 is going to give us more information between that time period. Okay, it's very important we understand that. There was a war in heaven where Satan, is, Satan loses any authority he had in heaven. And that is what we're talking about this morning, is the authority that Satan had and the authority that Satan lost. 
It's a regime change, as some call it. It's a regime change. So it's important that we understand the war that we're reading at in verse 7. See in verse 7, and a war broke out in heaven. That war in verse 7 is Jesus on the cross. Jesus won at the cross. And that is a unique position. Uh, well, I'll say it's an important facet of post-millennialism. Most Bible teachers, when they tell you about verse 7, they think it's in our future. Jesus doesn't win the war against Satan in our future. Jesus won the war against Satan at the cross. It's amazing to me that that's a novel minority view today. Jesus won at the cross. He doesn't win in our future. He won in our past. So there's a war that breaks out in heaven. And this war in heaven, you notice it's initiated by Michael and his angels. They fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. So now we have a war that breaks out in heaven. Notice it's initiated by Michael and his angels. Now we have Michael is brought into the story here for a very specific reason. Remember, Revelation, I tell you all all the time, Revelation quotes or alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book by far. So as we're going through here, it mentions Michael. Well, the Bible doesn't say a lot about Michael. The Holy Spirit put him here so that you go back and do a study on Michael and understand why he's mentioned here. So a war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. Of course, that's Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought. But thank goodness in verse 8, but they did not prevail, speaking of Satan and his his angels. Nor was found found for them any uh, in heaven, a place for them any in heaven any longer. So, as, before we go too far in here, I want to show you a little quick history of Michael. Why is Michael mentioned here? First of all, his name means who is like God. Michael, um, and, and by the way, the angels under, under his authority, they are the ones that initiated this war. It, it was not the dragon that initiated this war. It's very important you see that. The dragon didn't initiate this war. It was Michael and his angels that initiated this war. So who is Michael? Let's do a quick Quick background on Michael because it's very, very important that you see this. In, in Daniel chapter 12, it says at that time, at that time, the times that's talked about in Daniel 12.1 is exactly what we're reading in Revelation 12. And you can always remember that because they're both chapter 12. Remember, Daniel 12, Revelation 12 are linked together. At that time, what time? The time of the cross, the time a war broke out in heaven. At that time, Michael shall stand up. So now Daniel's giving us a prophecy of what happens in heaven at the, at the crucifixion of Christ and is recorded in Revelation 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince. Now we have another title for Michael. Michael is the great prince of Israel. At that time, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was. Does that sound familiar? Such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in, in, the, in the book. And in verse number two, we have this incredible prophecy of those who are found in Christ take part of his I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live Paul says in Galatians 2 and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life some to everlasting contempt we have a resurrection here because Jesus has resurrected and we resurrect with him 
we take part of the first resurrection. Now, the general resurrection of the dead will happen at the second coming of Christ, but we have our victory at the cross. When Jesus resurrected, we were dead with him, we were buried with him, and we resurrect with him. So it's at this time of this war of the cross, it's no mistake that the resurrection is mentioned in verse number two. I want to show you another very interesting part of this story with Michael. And that is, I think, one of the most fascinating pullbacks of the veil into the world of the supernatural that we get to see in the Bible. This could be a whole hour on its own. But Daniel prays for help in Daniel 10. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Daniel prays for help to understand what's going on and to have, have knowledge and, 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 and learn from the Lord of wisdom. And here's what happens. The Lord hears his prayer in Daniel 10. And when the Lord hears his prayer, he sends him an angel, a messenger to minister to him. And do you know what? On the way for that angel to come to Daniel, that angel is fought with fallen angels and they're fighting each other. That first angel the Lord sent didn't win. And he goes back and retreats, and guess who he gets? Let's read it. Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 say this. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your God. Your words were heard. I have come because of your words. Why'd you take so long? Well, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. And then we'll scroll down here and read also in verses 20 and 21. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? And, uh, and now I must return uh, to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noticed in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. What just happened in Daniel 10? What happened is there were fallen angels. And you notice they are organized by geographical names. The prince of Persia is probably a fallen angel that's in charge to give a delusion to Persia. The prince of Greece, same thing. To be in charge as Satan has organized the fallen angels to fight against those particular people. This particular angel could not fight against the prince of Persia. He was like, man, I'm not winning here. And he goes back up to heaven for some backup and he grabs Michael. Michael beats the stew out of this dude and the first angel then can get through to Daniel. You don't think prayer is important? There is a battle going on in your home. There's a battle going on in your heart. Battle going on for your mind. So it's no mistake that Michael is mentioned in Revelation 12. Because he's the guy that God put in charge to be the prince of the people of Israel to be able to push things through when they need to happen militarily. Um, There's so many things I want to get into here. Like I said, we're we're not going to get through all this. That's okay, though. I want to show you again the phrase, at that time. Do you notice it says, at that time in chapter 12? Um, let's, Let's look at it one more time. 
There it says in Daniel 12, at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And then it says this phrase, there shall be a time of trouble. What time period are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus at the cross. We're talking about Jesus resurrected, a changing of the regime from the dominion of Satan to the to power of Jesus and the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of Christ. And then there's going to be trouble like the world has never seen before, never in the history of this nation. Well, let's head over to something that is very familiar to you. Let's head over to Matthew 24 and remind ourselves what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, remember Jesus in his instructions say, there will be great tribulation. Now this is the same time period. This is the time period. Now Jesus is prophesying this because he had not died yet. But Jesus is saying in a few years, which we know is going to be 36 and a half years away. Did I do that right? Yes. Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be great tribulation. You say, I hear that the great tribulation is in our future. Well, Jesus just doesn't say that. It's not in the Bible. The Bible here says there will be great tribulation. There's your great tribulation. When is it? Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. I think that's kind of conclusive. It means in the future also. So when is that? Well, you could read on here, but in verse 34, Jesus is saying, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. The great tribulation, according to the Bible, which there's never been one like it and there never will be one after it, happened to the generation Jesus was speaking to. Now, why did he use the word generation? Because the generation in the Bible is 40 years. That's the definition in the Bible. I know you may have heard 20 or 30 or sometimes people say 80, but we are not able to pick whatever number we want. We have to use the Bible definition. Remember when the children of Israel were brought into bondage in Egypt, remember they had to wait for that generation to die off before they could move on into the promised land. And that was a 40 year wandering. We're using the Bible definition, which is 40 years. Jesus said this in AD 30. Guess when this thing ended? AD 70 was the destruction of the temple, exactly 40 years. Okay, so we don't have that option. A couple other things I want to point out to you. Um, I have a temptation right now to go fast, and I'm, I'm trying to fight that because I'm trying to remind myself we're not going to get through this today because I'm trying to hurry, and I don't, I don't want to do that because it's too important. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verses 8 and 9, very important. Because this, this all ties together. Uh, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations... When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. So right here in this incredible verse, we have that the Lord divided the inheritance to the nations when he separated the sons of Adam. So this is a, an understanding of how the Lord all the stuff we're talking about in Revelation can be understood right here in these verses. The nations were divided according to the sons of Adam, godly and ungodly. He separated apart Jacob, and his promises went to his people. Let's go ahead and compare this with Hebrews. So, so, so here's the point. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the word Gentiles, or I'm sorry, the word nations, with an S, nations, is the exact same Hebrew word as the word Gentiles. So you have the nations, it's the story of the nations, and the nation. The story of the Gentile, ungodly, out of covenant, 
and the story of the godly in covenant, which was referred to as Israel. Within Israel, there were some saved and unsaved, and that's why they always got their church discipline that we call the divided kingdom. In Hebrews chapter 2, it, it, it really expounds on this a little bit. Let's go ahead and look at this. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So, question according to verse 15, or 14. Question according to this. When was it according to verse 14 that the devil was destroyed? That through death he might be, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. At the moment Jesus died, the devil was destroyed. According to this verse. Verse 15 says, And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The curse, Jesus' love went as far as the curse was found. His atoning powers, redemption of mankind, according to our Christmas carol, was as far as the curse was found. And that is good biblical theology. When Jesus died, the whole world's curse was lifted. And now our freedom is found in the gospel as we fight back any deception today. Um, let's go ahead and look also. Um, oh, by the way, I'm not going to be overly dogmatic on this, but I think this is important for us to note. As we head, Let me just show you something really quick um, in Revelation 12. In verse number 7, it says, A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon fought with his angels. That word angels, it's very important that you know this, but at the same time, take it for what it is. Okay, The word angels here just simply means messenger. When we think of angels, we automatically think of touched by an angel. right? We think of Della Reese or something. <laughs> Highway to heaven, Michael Landon. I think of an angel as a... In heaven somewhere with clouds, there's probably a harp. There's probably some kind of a, you know, according to uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, it's probably a, a, an assignment that needs to get done. Well, that's Miss Pat's favorite. If you ever want to buy her a Christmas present, buy her It's a Wonderful Life. She likes even the audio version, anything to do with it she wants, over on repeat. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> but according to our culture... Uh, whether you're you know, looking at a Peanuts kind of comic strip or you're looking at a movie in our call, if you hear the word angel, we all think of the same kind of thing. And we always usually think it's kind of a dead person that's floating and all this kind of stuff. Well, I just want you to know, you got to get that out of your head when you're reading Revelation or the Bible in general. The word angel has to be put in context. And I'm just going to throw this out here this morning. It's very possible that the angels here are people. The word angel just means messenger. Okay, so you have to at least do yourself a favor and at least at bare minimum put the word messenger here for yourself. Okay, just read it with that word and see. Let, let, me, let me explain what I'm talking about. Remember second act, act two. What is act two about? It's the same story of the redemption and the power of Jesus Christ with act two now is the emphasis of how it relates to us, his people, the ecclesia. Remember, let me go back to something Remember, let me show you something in, in Revelation 2.1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. That's probably 
the communicating pastor of, over this church. We're talking about people. What good does it do to tell an angel over a people group? We're, the word angel there is the word messenger. I wouldn't die for this. I wouldn't split fellowship over this. It's a very minor, minor point. But I would just say it's, I think it's important for our discussion this morning for you to understand. It's very possible that the word angel here is talking about people. Why? Because, look at this. In Revelation 11, the end of Act 1, in Revelation 11, in verse number 15, it says here, Seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, that means of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's about the kingdoms, the battles over the nations, people. And it says here at the end of this um, chapter, uh, actually we're going to go to the next chapter. Let me, let me show you. So it's about the kingdoms, and we're going to go a little forward in our, in our reading today and look at 10 and 11. It says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now this is about the same thing we just read in verse chapter 11. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, that's the dragon we're reading about, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they, who's the they there? Well, it's the people with the loud voices in heaven saying, and they, that's the ecclesia, have have overcome him. Who's the him? The accuser of our brethren, the devil. How did they overcome him? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Their testimony. So the blood of Christ being spilled out for us on the cross precedes the testimony that we have. that The gospel is true and that Jesus is king. And it's based on his actions that we have in our mouth a testimony. And it's our testimony every time you proclaim the goodness of Christ, every single time you preach the gospel to your neighbor, every time you bring Jesus on purpose up in a conversation, you're beating the devil back. He can't stay in the room. He can't. You're defeating him with the gospel. His lies have no basis in your home when Jesus is being spoken of. And so you got to see that in verse 11. Who's the they? It's the people. This is about people. And people overcame the accuser by the blood of the lamb and then them talking about it. The word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the death. So we'll, we'll build to that. But I just happen to think that it's very possible the war broke out in heaven. Michael fought with his angel and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon, I think it's talking about the saved on the earth, and the lost on the earth are going to battle. Now, I wouldn't split fellowship over that. I just think that matches. I think that that's what we're talking about. But I think in heaven, we're having a battle also with Michael and Satan. Let's, let's read a little bit more. We'll, we'll, we'll call it for today. Um, did we, we do Hebrews 2? We did. Okay, I thought, I thought we did. I just want to make sure. Verse number eight, let's go to verse number eight. But they did not prevail, that's speaking of Michael, or uh, speaking of uh, Satan, nor was found any, uh, found, I cannot say, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now this is really interesting. This phrase right here, I want you to imagine that the, this is a complete surprise to Satan when he saw Jesus on the cross. Total surprise. Remember, and I know this gets into a little bit of Christology, so bear with me. Remember, Satan had been looking for the one 
Satan had been looking for the Messiah since Seth. As in Adam and Eve, Seth. Remember Cain, Abel, he curses Cain. And he says, the next godly thing out of that woman is going to crush your skull. So all of a sudden there's four people on the earth and Abel gets killed. Why? Because his sacrifices were accepted by God. Can you imagine the incredible satanic oppression on Cain? I mean, the guy was possessed by Satan, killed his brother. Why? Man, the prophecy is the godly seed of that woman. There's two people. Only one of them is godly and is accepted by God. He has to die. And then God graciously allows Seth to be born. And the godly line of Seth, ever since Seth was born, ever since really Cain and Abel were born, but through the godly line of Seth, the dragon has been waiting, been waiting, been waiting. And every godly thing that comes out, is it Moses? Kill him. All of a sudden, Pharaoh, kill all the kids under two. Where does that come from? Man, Satan's just after him, just after him. All these odd things with a scarlet thread we read through the Bible. Anything that looks godly at all from the line of Seth is totally under attack. Finally, Jesus is born. The king of the Jews. What does Herod say? Kill every kid under two. Really? Could you imagine a president saying, I heard somebody else thinks they're president and they're they're a a one-year-old. Well, I'm so affected by that, I'm going to kill all the kids in the whole country two and under. That's bizarre. Why would a world leader be affected by a baby? That's just strange. But he has to. Satan has to attack. So can you imagine all of the messiahs that Satan has had victory over? Oh, it wasn't Moses. Oh, he can't even speak very well. Oh, and then he died. And look, nothing changed. Oh, no, it wasn't Elijah. It wasn't, it wasn't this. It wasn't that. So Jesus comes lowly. It's certainly not him. He doesn't even have a big following. But then we finally get him on the cross. Satan goes, there goes another one. Another one bites the dust. Get out of here. I am adding this because this is not in the Bible. I just happen to think in my mind it makes sense that when Jesus was on the cross and Satan's over in the corner looking and just before Jesus and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Just before he dies, I just imagine this. I imagine he looks over at Satan and he just winks at him. Got ya. Because it was at that moment the old covenant was fully fulfilled and Satan was defeated. And I think that that's exactly what this is talking about. They did not prevail. But as I heard Bruce Gore say this week, it's not because it was a lack of trying. It's not because it was a lack of trying. But thank God they did not prevail. Nor was found... Nor was a place for them, uh, why can't I not say that? Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. This is very, very important to understand this because let me show you a couple things. Well, let's first go to 1 Corinthians uh, and we'll we'll end with uh, this verse um, or, you know, verse number eight I'm saying. In 1 Corinthians, let's get our right book here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses 7 and 8. The Bible says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that amazing? The rulers of this age, which none of them knew, 
I mean, do you really think Pilate would have said what he said? Do you really think Caiaphas would have said what he said? None of them would say that. If they really, that's what this verse is saying. None of the rulers of this age knew. They didn't get it. This was him. This was God who emptied himself and became flesh and walked among us. This was him. None of them knew. For had they known, Paul said, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan didn't know. I don't think he knew. I think he knew there was an option. I think he knew there was a chance, but once he got him on the cross, this is the guy that's going to take over everything? No idea. But there was no longer any place for him. Are you saying, Ken, that the Bible's saying there was a place for Satan in heaven? Yes, there was. Remember the story of Job? The story of Job is really a representation of all of us. It's just that God finally zeroed in on one person. I don't want to leave you with this thought over the next five minutes. I want to develop one thought for you. This thought is very simple, but it's so powerful. Just please let your mind go here because it's probably something you've never considered before. And that is this. Satan, think of him as a prosecuting attorney. He had access to the court of heaven. And I want you to really get your head wrapped around this. Satan had a very good case against you because you were guilty and Jesus and God is just and you did do the things that Satan said. The only thing standing between the average person, any person, and God's wrath was following a very difficult to follow and very specific sacrificial system. There's a lot of loopholes in our tax code. And guess what? With a very detailed sacrificial system, you better do it right. So, Satan, the prosecuting attorney in the Old Covenant, had a pretty good case. And God could only justify you if you followed it precisely. And Satan was waiting for that to not be followed precisely. Job, the story of Job, is just one example of what Satan did. In Job chapter 1, in verse number 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where would you come from? Satan answered the Lord, said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. By the way, I thought he was a serpent. Yeah, he was, was he walking? Was he slithering? The whole serpent idea is, a, a, a picture for you to understand his curses. It doesn't mean he doesn't have legs. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? The word eschew there is used in the King James. It means he predetermined to stay away from bad things. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, you kind of give him all, you're paying him in blessings, Lord. You pay him in blessings. Of course, he's going to be faithful to you. It's worth it. And God says, all right, let's, let's have a little bet here. And Job is in the middle of, a, of an incredible uh, supernatural bet that has nothing to do with him, has everything to do with God versus Satan. But I want you to understand as, as Satan accuses Job before the Lord and says, does he not just love you because of all your blessings. I want you to get this one point here before we close. 
the prosecuting attorney, which is Satan, shows us his judicial foothold. See, here's, here's the idea. If God is just, how can he justify the guilty? Let's say it this way. Mercy is always voluntary. Right? If we were in a court system today and the judge was here and I was an attorney and I'm representing my client, I could appeal to the judge for mercy. But according to the law, he doesn't have to give it. It truly is mercy of the goodness of this judge's heart. Mercy is just a good Bible idea to have in your high, uh, uh, in, into your mind. Mercy is always voluntary. But God is limited by his character to justice. So in the old covenant, Satan had a point. He was the accuser of the brethren. When Jesus came and fulfilled the sacrificial system, he took the angle away from the prosecuting attorney. He took his judicial foothold out from under him. There's no more loophole. And so there's no more place found in heaven for him. He has no authority to stand on anything. Because how, how is he defeated? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And so we are reading the record this morning of the, the regime change of the nations and that Satan no longer, because of the war at the cross, had a judicial foothold on any loophole in the old covenant. And so we rejoice that Jesus has done away with the old covenant and fulfilled it and started a new covenant where Satan has absolutely no standing before him because we plead the righteousness of God's only son, Jesus.